This message was presented at the GYC 2011 conference. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. All right, everybody, nice to have you back. Bless you, we've got everything set up. We're using another laptop. Thank you, Pastor Gabriel. And we're going to roll that in just a moment. Give you a chance to settle back in. And I want to tell you, uh, in fact, you know what, Gabriel? Let's just talk about that right now before you hit the, hit the uh, we, we play the, roll the tape here. You went to the app store and you found an app, and you can just talk into my microphone. Sure. What is the app that you found? It's called Ellen White Answers. Completely free at the app store. Ellen White Answers, and it's for, for the iPhone and for the iPad, for both. That would be my friend Judd Lake. So you can get the app, and it's on your iPhone, sure and Gabriel just showed me the table of contents. Boom, 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 all the subjects. All right. It says uh, Ellen White in the Bible, Ellen White Life Sketch, Interpreting Ellen White, Shut Door, Plagiarism, Miscellaneous Charges, Hard Sayings, Health Charges, Ellen White Author, Steps to Christ, Other Useful Links, Book, Ellen White Under Fire. So the whole book is there. You got the book. You don't have to buy the book. There it is. Wow. Thank you, Gabriel. So uh, go to the App Store, Ellen White Answers, that first website that uh, is on your study guide, Ellen White Answers, the the, uh, App Store has it. That's great. All right, we're going we're gonna to roll this now. Gabriel has HMS Richards. I want you just to listen to this godly man. He was a teenager when he heard Ellen White preach and pray. And remember, as you're listening to this, Jesus' statement, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. So when you hear the fruitage, trust me, you'll conclude she could only be one tree. Yes, I knew Sister White in this way. I heard her preach once and saw her, of course. It was in Boulder, Colorado, the camp meeting in 1909, in a building with an iron roof right at the base of the Red Rocks there, on the campus of the University of Colorado. And uh, she was there, I suppose there were 200 Adventists, and maybe uh, the rest of 1,000 people or 800 people were just people of the town. People of various denominations wanted to see the Adventist prophet. I can remember when she came on the grounds in a surrey drawn by two horses, and Willie White, her son, was with her, and Miss McIntyre, her companion and nurse. And the meeting that night, she preached to us. I was sitting at her left hand, about, oh, 15 feet from her. You could see mm. her plainly, of course, right there. The platform was about a foot, foot and a half high. And she had this big, thick Bible. She was preaching faithfully, giving God's message. And uh, I, I was interested. It was interesting. She was just a dear, sweet Christian mother or grandmother telling us what we ought to do. Just as she started to talk to finish off, it started to rain on that iron roof, and you can imagine. Mm. Now, remember, no amplifiers in those days, except you carried your amplifier with you. And she's had a regular preaching voice. And you know, from this, from this conversational tone or voice that she'd been using, she went into her real preaching voice. And you could hear her voice just like a silver bell. 
Hmm. Right through all of that confusion caused by that rain. She could talk right through the rain noise. And then she talked it about a minute. And then she kneeled down to pray. She told her son, I must pray for us. Hmm. And she came over on my side of the platform and kneeled down and prayed. I can hear her now. She said, not our father, but oh, my father. And from that moment on, it was a personal communion between her and the Heavenly Father. Mm. In just a minute or two, there seemed to be a mighty power come over that meeting. And I felt it. I was just a, just a boy. I was a member of the church. I'd been baptized about a year and a half before. And I could feel that power until finally I, I was afraid to look up for fear I'd see God standing out there. But she was talking with him. She'd forgotten all about us. And she was in the presence of the Lord. And a minute or two more went by, and that whole crowd, you could hear them weeping, crying Something weeping. over their sin. A tremendous revival, really. Spiritual revival, the mighty power of God. When she preached, God blessed her as a preacher. But when she began to pray, he honored her as his prophet before the people. I'll never forget it. Isn't that powerful? A godly man as a teenager sitting 15 feet away from this woman. So where do we go from here? I think we've saved the best part till last. And I want to plunge into this now with you because this is where it gets practical. Some of you are just walking in for the first time and to this seminar. We're glad to have you. Study guides have all been handed out. Do, do we have any study guides left, Mitch? Are we all out next door? Are we out? Some, somebody just asked me a moment ago, hey, listen, yesterday I didn't get the study guide. Website, www.pmchurch.tv, right there. You're looking for the series, The Gift. The last four presentations are devoted to Ellen White. They're the presentations we had two yesterday, two this morning. We've had the first one this morning. We now come to the last portion. Taste them again for the first time. When I, was in, uh, when I was a kid in uh, church school, we used to have a time of the day when the teachers say, all right, boys and girls, we're going to have show and tell. Did they have that in the school you went to? Show and tell. You could hardly wait because you finally brought something. You've been waiting weeks, and now I have what I want to show. So I want to have a little show and tell here before we plunge into this final teaching. And wouldn't you know it, two headlines I want to share with you. Both from, uh, this one from Cyberspace. Christian Science Monitor. You ever heard of that respected news organization out of Boston, Massachusetts? They now run a website, the Christian Science Monitor website, csmonitor.com. Here's the headline that caught my eye. Now listen to this. The, for real education reform, take a cue from the Adventists. Whoa, boy, you see, if I see a headline like that, I'm going to read the story. Wouldn't you? Of course. So let me just read to you. A line or two. Amid all the buzz on education reform, the Seventh-day Adventist school system might seem an unexpected place to look for models in improving student achievement, but by educating mind, body, and spirit, Adventist schools outperform the national average across all demographics. Oh, now I'm really curious. Education reform. This is by uh, writer Elisa Kido. Education reform has taken center stage lately as Americans struggle to close the oft-condemned achievement gap Obama, President Obama, still talking about it, but quietly in our midst, 
the second largest Christian school system in the world, by the way, raised up by a, a little five foot two inch woman, the second largest Christian school system in the world has been steadily outperforming the national average across all demographics. Listen to this. Since 2006, as a part of a what's called the Cognitive Genesis Study, data on more than 50,000 students enrolled in Seventh-day Adventist schools was examined. While we've long believed in the effectiveness of the holistic approach Adventist schools take, we want to quantify empirically how well students in Adventist schools perform. Our four-year independently financed studies show that students at Adventist schools outperform their peers at the national average in every subject area. Our research shows the demographics of Adventist schools are closest, closer to that of public schools. Because some people are saying, yeah, but you run all these private schools, and of course you're going to have a higher quality education in your private schools. But <clears throat> the uh, demographics show that, in fact, Adventist schools are closer to those of public schools with high economic and socioeconomic diversity. We're not just some kind of one-class school. Enrollment is open, meaning students are admitted without the kind of screening for ability that many of the other private schools employ. The Adventist Church in North America runs almost a thousand schools, many of which are small and rural. We found no relationship between the size of the school that the students attended and achievement. So if you have kids and you're in some little country corner someday, don't disparage that little country school. The results are the same. Amazing. Oh, let me just a couple more lines. So how do we account for the Adventist advantage? We believe it lies in the holistic approach of these schools, a commitment to educating mind, body, and spirit. Unlike public schools, Adventist schools across the country have a standard curriculum. It includes the traditional three R's, along with emphasis on spiritual and physical development. There's a, there's a coherence and a connectedness between Adventist schools that doesn't often exist in other systems. Last line. True reform of the public school system will take hard work and innovation, but the Adventists provide a model that can help reformers hit the reset button. Isn't that amazing? Where did that little, uh, where did that concept of church school come from? From the little lady that has been the subject of our reflective thinking here. By their fruits, Jesus said, you'll know them. The largest Protestant parochial school system on earth. Raised up by a little woman who had Nine years of age, because of that tragic accident, had to drop out of school. What is up with that? By their fruits, Jesus said, you'll know them. Okay, so that's one headline. I want to share another headline. This one, uh, the lighting is so pitiful in this room. Can you see what I have in my hand? Yeah, that's National Geographic. Everybody knows National Geographic. So I get this National Geographic magazine, and it says, The Secrets of Living Longer. Whoa, now you got my attention. So I go and look under the, uh, okay, here it is. What if I said to you, the feature article author writes, what if I said you could add up to 10 years to your life? A long, healthy life is no accident. It begins with good genes, but it also depends on good habits. If you adopt the right lifestyle, experts say chances are you may live up to a decade longer. So what's the formula for success? In recent years, researchers have found out across the globe. We went to Sardinia, Italy. We went to Okinawa, Japan. And we went to a place called Loma Linda, California. Oh, I've heard of that place. And we studied a group of Seventh-day Adventists who rank among America's longevity all-stars. So I, let's forget about Sardinia. Let's forget about Okinawa, though that's part of Japan where I was born. I use, uh, resist the urge to read that section. Let me just read this to you. The Seventh-day Adventist Church 
Born during the era of 19th century health reforms that popularized organized vegetarianism, the graham cracker and breakfast cereals, John Harvey Kellogg was an Adventist when he started making wheat flakes. You've probably heard of those. The Seventh-day Adventist Church has always preached and practiced a message of hell. <coughs> Excuse me. It expressly forbids smoking, alcohol consumption, and eating biblically unclean foods such as pork. It also discourages the consumption of other meat, rich foods, caffeinated drinks. It does? It also discourages the consumption of other meats, rich foods, caffeinated drinks, and stimulating condiments and spices. Grains, fruits, nuts, and vegetables constitute the diet chosen by, chosen for us by our Creator, wrote Ellen White, an early figure who helped shape the Adventist church. Adventists also observed the Sabbath on Saturday, socializing with other church members and enjoying a sanctuary in time that helps relieve stress. Today, most Adventists follow the prescribed lifestyle, a testimony perhaps to the power of mixing health and religion. Wow! Isn't that something? Two national headlines. And what, what do they have in common? Both of them. The result of the ministry of a little five foot two inch woman in the 19th century. The largest Protestant health system on earth. Thanks to her vision. Isn't that something? Jesus said, by their fruits, you will know them. Now, we just noted a moment ago that What's amazing about how the divine inspiration works is not so much what the inspired one borrows, it's what the inspired one leaves out. So I got this book. Somebody uh, drew my attention to the book written by uh, an, Australian, uh, an Australian ear, nose, and throat specialist named Don McMahon and a Loma Linda University biologist and researcher named Leonard Brand. And they've examined Ellen White's health teaching. I'm going to put their words on the screen. Do, do I have this in the study guide? Okay, look at this. Leonard Brand, Don McMahon. The critics' claims that Ellen White's writings can be explained as originating from strictly human sources do not stand up to critical evaluation. Dr. Donald McMahon's research reveals a dramatic difference in quality between Mrs. White's health principles and those advocated by other health reformers in the 1800s. And so I'm looking at their book, and they, put, they have a list, a list of uh, health reforms that were advocated in the time uh, that Ellen White wrote. So uh, Sylvester Graham, have you heard of Sylvester Graham? He's kind of a health reformer back in the 19th century. Here is material that he recommended to his readers. Don't heat your house. <laughs> I can't imagine somebody would do that, but that's true. Go naked. Well, that one really doesn't make sense. Don't rock a baby to sleep. Well, how do you get him to sleep? Don't drink water. Get your, wick, uh, get your liquids only from fruit. Now, that's Sylvester Graham. Here's a, here's a health reformer named William Alcott. Wear very little clothing, even when it's cold. Try living in Michigan and do that. <laughs> I appreciate that counsel. Don't use eyeglasses. Don't comfort children. Crying is good for them. Now, here's for those of you that live in Florida. And this is for those of you that live in Florida and California. Avoid sweating in hot weather. Because <laughs> if you can avoid sweating, you're going to be healthier. <laughs> All right, here's a, here's a health reformer named Larkin Coles. Avoid excessive spitting. I, I was encouraged by that. 
Here's a, don't rock a child in a cradle. I don't know what was going on there. Don't nurse babies at night. Drink little water. Don't wear black. <laughs> Rubbing the body with the hands will substitute for a bath. <laughs> I don't know where this, where this stuff comes from. But what, what, what McMahon, what McMahon and, and Brand are noting is, hey, listen, when you compare all that was being offered at the time this little woman is writing health principles, something's going on here. She doesn't take any of that. None of that is incorporated. How does she know? This difference indicates that Mrs. White had health information that could not have come. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this is from two scientists, all right? albeit Adventist scientists. But I want you to listen carefully to this. This difference indicates that Mrs. White had health information that could not have come from any human source available anywhere at the time she lived and wrote. At least in the area of health, our research has provided evidence that demands an extra-biblical, extra-human source of information to account for the accuracy of her principles. Isn't that amazing? All of that foolishness. Skip, 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 skip. Okay, so I pull that in. But who was telling her? How would she know exactly, Tim? How would she know? Look at God. Who's the, who's the great health reformer? It's the Almighty Himself. If you diligently heed, this is God speaking, if you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in His sight, give ear to His commandments and keep all His statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord who does what? I'm the Lord who heals you. Amazing. Even up to a ten-year advantage, empirically now, it's being shown. That the health lifestyle advocated by that little woman has a ten-year advantage to the rest of human society. Maybe, ladies and gentlemen, maybe our Creator really does know our bodies best. And He has counsel for those who wished the 10-year advantage. I don't know about you, but if, it's, look, if, if we're looking at Jesus coming later than we thought, I want that 10-year advantage. Is there anybody here who doesn't want the 10-year advantage? Yeah. All right. Let's go to the dramatic apocalypse now. Taste them again for the first time, but I need, there, there is something I, I need you to catch before we look at the... By the way, another bit of research, the powerful empirical effect of reading Ellen White, what it has on your life and your spirituality. Before we go to that, I want to go back to uh, Revelation. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. Revisit this for a moment. Now, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. I love this picture. And so, when I can get a chance to flip it up, there's an artist's portrayal of that woman. She's standing on the moon. She's clothed in the sun, a garland of 12 stars. What does the woman represent again? Refresh my memory. She represents the church. Pure woman represents the... Impure woman would represent the... Impure church, apostate church. Good. So here, John says, I saw this wonder. Wow, this woman. What's going on here? Keep reading. Then, being with child, the woman became pregnant, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Verse 3. And another sign. Oh, there comes a second sign. Another sign. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. And I went to Google and I said, Google, find me the most ferocious dragon you have. And here's what Google gave me. 
That's pretty ferocious, isn't it? Yeah, there's a dragon for you. So you had this woman, pure, bathed in the light of the sun, standing upon the moon, a garland. And by the way, garland, Stephanos. The, the Greek word for garland is Stephanos. From whence comes the word Stephanie or Stephen. It means the garland of victory. It's what the Olympians were crowned with, a little green wreath they were crowned with when they, when they won. When they prevailed. So she has the winner's crown on. But John says, then she's pregnant and I see this dragon. Seven heads. This is one of them. Whoa. And his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven. Shoom. And threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child. You can just see that salivating jaw. The seven heads all over her ready to consume the child when it's born. But, oops. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. A messianic picture straight out of Psalm 2. Boom! And that child is caught up to God. And the dragon misses. The entire gospel story is told in that one line. you got Christmas and Calvary in that one line. All of it right there. Boom! And the child's gone. Ah, but what about the woman? Uh-oh. Bad news for the woman. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. A day in Bible prophecy equals one year, 1260 years. This is the dark. These are the Middle Ages. Dark and repressive, bloody Middle Ages. She's hiding. The true church is in hiding. Now, when the dragon saw that he had been cast into the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child, and the dragon was enraged. Oh, here comes the text now. And the dragon was enraged with the woman. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, the remnant of her seed, who keep the commandments of God and who have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Two possessions. Two possessions. The Ten Commandments, this little remnant community, they keep the, they keep the commandments of God, and actually it's just one possession. Obedient to God, radical obedience to God, but they possess something. And notice what it is they possess. Read it out loud to me. And they have what? And they have the testimony of Jesus. So here's a question. Here's a question we need to be asking. We asked it yesterday. We quickly, we quickly studied Revelation 19 and, and, and the Revelation 22. And I'll put 19, just 19. Up again, just to remind us, for the testimony of Jesus is what, uh, ladies and gentlemen? The testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. So, I need to ask you, why has the dragon, from the very beginning, been so enraged over the gift of prophecy? Why is he salivating to destroy the spirit of prophecy? Why, why? Identifies God's true church. Good. Reveals his deceptions. Good. Tells us about Jesus. Very good. Yes, young man. It points out Jesus bringing him into the church. Very good. I go running every morning at 6.30. All right, I run 5K during the, during the week and 10K on Sunday. But during the week, I've got to get, uh, get that in. And you know, at this time of the year, in Michigan anyway... 6.30 in the morning, it's pitch black. So I run, not just with a reflector vest on that a runner friend of mine gave me, but I also run with a, with a, with a halogen 
flashlight. If I have that halogen flashlight in my hand, I feel relatively safe. In fact, I just tell you that this happened about six weeks ago. So I'm running, and, I ha- and, I'm, and it's pointing ahead, and I hear behind me, and every runner just freezes when she hears, or he hears this. I hear the sound of nails on pavement, scrambling, and I know that there's something coming on me very fast, and it's probably a dog. And it was pitch black, and I have this strobe, and I whirled around just like that as a German shepherd about eight feet from me with his fangs open. The moment I shined that light in his eye, skidded to a stop and raced off. And I am pumping adrenaline now for three days. Just, it's just, I can't get over it. I had to stop and get my heart stopped and... Oh, it was awful. But I was grateful. If I had not had that halogen light, that guy was going for whatever it was in the dark that was near his territory. Oh, just the thought of it gives me the heebie-jeebies. <laughs> so I run with this light. When I have the light, why? I, I, I'm not afraid. Do you know why? Because if I had this light, what does the light do for me for what's still ahead of me? The light exposes what lies immediately in front of me. When I shine it, it exposes what's ahead so that when I get to it, I'm not surprised. Sometimes I run and I, I, just, I leave my flashlight off and I see a dark spot in the road. I tell you what, runners just, just see all kinds of stuff. And when you see a dark spot, you're thinking, is this an animal lying there? You have to have the light. If the light is in your possession, you can... You can focus it. You can turn it to what's in front of you. You can turn it into the future. And the future will be brought to vision. And you will be able to see what's coming ahead. If I were the dragon. If I were the dragon, I would bring all seven heads to bear on putting out that light at any cost. Because that halogen light of the apocalypse... The halogen light of the spirit of prophecy exposes the modus operandi of the dragon. Now, since you got me into this, if I were the dragon, talking about health, I would have people laugh at some of the little standards that once were a part of our lifestyle with health. I'd have people saying, hey, it doesn't matter now. Everybody is Starbucks. Come on, what's the big deal? That's what I do, because I wouldn't want I wouldn't want them to know about the effect, the effect of an induced drug into the system. I would just go say, forget it, because if I could get them to lower their standard here, then I can get them to just drop it down here. Then I would get them to just lower it down here. Then I get them to drop it down here, and pretty soon they've lost their sensitivity to to a halogen light that warned a generation. You're going to have to have the clearest mind that any generation in the history of the humanity had. You're going to have to have a mind that thinks. You're going to have to have a you're going to have to have a system of health that can survive. I just work on all the peripherals. They're all looking over here. The light was meant to expose this, but they're not using the flashlight for that anymore. If I were the dragon, that's what I'd do. Am I saved on the basis of what goes between my lips? 
Apparently, Daniel would answer the question, yes. What did Daniel do? He resolved. He resolved not to what? Not to abide anything that was counterproductive to his relationship with Almighty God. Hey, guys, here's the point. If I were the dragon, I'd have two strategies. Strategy number one. Is this in your study guide? I think it might be. Strategy number one, I would ravage the author... This little halogen light, ooh, i got to get rid of that halogen light. I would ravage the author and her writings so that no one will read her. I'd have so many cyberspace websites, I would be attacking her from every angle I could because I have to put the light out. I have to get the light out. The light is shining in my eyes and they'll see me. I've got to kill the light. So strategy number one, I would ravage the author and her writing so that no one will read her. And my other strategy would be equal and opposite. Strategy number two, I would overemphasize the author and her writings so that no one will read her. Either way, I win. I just had a youth pastor coming up from Guam, and he said, hey, Dwight... Uh, you know, I got these kids, you know, they're not really into all this technical debate about what uh, the apologists are bringing up right now, but they're saying, you know what, I'm so sick and tired of hearing her at church that I don't want anything to do with her. That's a brilliant strategy, by the way. Overkill. Overkill. I don't want. So we have a generation of baby boomers now, and I'm a baby boomer. It was overkill when we were growing up. So we overcompensated. And for our children, we undersold. So I got a generation, 3,500 kids that come to Andrews University. Most of those young adults, they don't know yay or nay. They're just nothing now. See? Either strategy works, guys. Either strategy. You're bright. Jesus has given you that intellect that you have. Take the gift. Don't go either way. To, don't go to either extreme. Hold that gift. Test all things, but hold on to the gift. John Evans Andrews, who is the uh, namesake of the university where I have the privilege of pastoring. Bright mind, by the way. First missionary, and that's why the the first school of higher education and the denomination was named. Uh, the first university is named after uh, the first missionary, John Evans Andrews. He wrote something. And I'm, he wrote a, a how many point in, in February 17, 18, February 15 rather, 1870, Review and Herald. Andrews laid out 20 short points to express what Seventh-day Adventists believe about the biblical teaching of spiritual gifts and Ellen White's prophetic ministry. Okay, so we're not going to read the 20. I want to give you the last two, though. I thought this was very balanced, and I hope this will be helpful for you. So, number 19, okay, so he's got 20 of these. Number 19, one of the chief gifts of the Spirit of God that he, God, has placed in the New Testament church is the gift of prophecy. All right, those are the verses. This gift, Andrews goes on, the Bible connects with the closing work of this dispensation. It will be, it will be the, the remnant community of faith, the radical apocalyptic community at the end will have this gift. Spiritual gifts do not, therefore, cease to be of importance in the sight of God, nor in that to his true people. Watch this. And that the message, and that message, which is to accomplish the perfecting of the saints and to fit them for translation, has the Spirit of God connected with it and speaking out in the management of its work. Okay, so what his point is, look at Spiritual gifts 
the New Testament clearly teaches, will be in existence all the way to the end, even just before Jesus comes. Those gifts will still be in operation. Finally now, number 20. And here's where the balance comes through, and I love this. Finally, in the reception of members into our churches. All right, so somebody new is joining our little community of faith. We're bringing them in. Finally now, we desire on this subject to know two things. Here's what you ask. Your friend has been studying the Bible. Your friend wants to become a part of your community of faith. Two things. Andrew says two things we ask. Number one, that they believe the Bible doctrine of spiritual gifts. Do you believe that the Bible teaches spiritual gifts? Yes, okay, good. Number two, that they will candidly acquaint themselves with the visions of Ellen White, which have ever held so prominent place in this work. Would you be willing to check it out? Just check it out. Examine it for yourself. We believe, I love this, we believe that every person standing thus and carrying out this purpose will be guided in the way of truth and righteousness. Just check it out for yourself. Taste them again for the first time. And, the, and here's the clincher. And these who occupy this ground, so those who are coming into our community of faith, are never denied all the time they desire to decide this matter. Isn't that good? In the Seventh-day Adventist Church, you are not required to believe, you are not required to profess and believe that Ellen White is the manifestation of that gift. Jane Andrews just reminded us, yes, you must believe spiritual gifts are in existence to the end of time and that we believe that Ellen White manifests those gifts. But you're given time. And I like that balance. You take the time. You examine the evidence. Those who occupy this ground are never denied all the time you need to decide on this matter. You know what, ladies and gentlemen? That little bit of gentle accommodation to somebody discovering something for the first time. That's healthy. That's good. Don't ever require of somebody who is joining your community of faith where you are, your little church, to suddenly become the equivalent of a 70-year of a Bible student. Are you kidding? They're starting out with one day and then a month and then a year. Let, let people grow up in Christ. Andrew says, listen, when it comes to the spirit of prophecy, take all the time you need. Sounds awfully, awfully balanced kind of counsel to me. How about to you? Doesn't that, seem, doesn't that seem balanced? Yeah, it's good counsel. By the way, I'm just as certain as Andrew's is that uh, if you take the time and you examine the writings, you will come to the conclusion that this is good fruit ordained by the spirit of Jesus. All right, so where do we go next? I say we ought to embrace it's Kellogg's Corn Flakes' grand marketing strategy a few years ago. Do you remember when they came out with this? This was just brilliant. The guy who, the guy who invented this little catchphrase earned every penny of the million dollars they gave him to come up with it, or however much they paid him. Taste him again for the first time. When, uh, when, when, when I grew up in Japan... My brother Greg and my sister Carrie, they were all missionaries' kids. You know, in Japan, we had, one, we had two cereals. We had this kind of interesting granola that was made by uh, the, the Japan Missionary College, which is the Adventist school. It's kind of this lumpy, hard granola. Or we had mother's hot oatmeal. And uh, 
after a while, just those two choices, it just, you know, the, the excitement went out of them both. So when we came on our first furlough, I'm telling you the truth, when we came on our first furlough and we stepped into an American supermarket and we realized that there are miles of shelves with only breakfast cereal, only breakfast cereal, we thought we had died and gone to heaven. I mean, you just can't believe all the cereals Americans get to eat. And we went up and down those aisles. And of course, Kellogg's was, is positioned as one of the leaders in breakfast cereal today. But that marketing strategy was a brilliant ploy to do what? Who do you think Kellogg's is going for with that marketing strategy right there? Well, the, the sentence is, taste them again for the first time. Who do you suppose Kellogg was trying, that the, the corporation was trying to get, bring back? Yep, they're, they're trying to reach the people who grew up eating cornflakes, isn't that right? You know, you grew up eating cornflakes, but after a while you develop a sophisticated palate, and now it's muselix. Cornflakes, forget cornflakes, and muselix with soy milk and raspberries. So Kellogg is now making, a, making an effort to go back to the ones who grew up with cornflakes but felt that they've become so sophisticated they've outgrown it. We don't need cornflakes anymore now. We're much brighter. And with that brilliant line, they're saying, hey, come on, taste them again for the first time. How can you do anything again for the first time? The meaning, of course, is we want you to come back because you never really got it the first time. You didn't know what you had. You come back this time and taste it like it's the first time and you're going to love our cornflakes. I still think they're wrong, by the way, but uh, <laughs> it's not a bad cereal. But ladies and gentlemen, what would happen if we did the same? What would happen if a church that has grown up in this nation and in Canada and North America in particular grown up with this gift. We've kind of become sophisticated now. We're getting our PhDs all over the map. We're getting our science. We're getting our, we're getting our advanced education. We are now so bright that we have left behind the gift of our childhood. What would happen? We have a generation of young coming now through. They've never even seen this gift. What would happen if we would go back to the gift and taste it all over again for the first time? That's the point. Is it possible... that there's more to this gift than we ever first knew. I'm going to share with you now what I promised you yesterday. This amazing empirical research evidence. Two friends of mine, Roger Dudley and Des Cummings Jr., a few years ago surveyed, listen to this, more than 8,200 members of the 193 Seventh-day Adventist churches across North America. So they surveyed 8,200, 8,200 people. Their research confirmed on a broad scale what many of us ex have experienced on a deeply personal scale. And here, here it is. They were, they were going to survey 20 variables of spirituality. All right? They're going to find out what's the, what's the level of spirituality in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So there are 20 different spirituality practices. 20 of them. Simple little survey. What do you do? Label your involvement with all 20. All right? So the survey went out. 8,200 Adventists were surveyed. The results came back, and when they were compiled, the stunning conclusions. And I've got to share it with you. In fact, your study guide has it. This study guide is worth just having that chart that you have in your study guide. I'm going to flip up onto the screen. 
Amazing, amazing. Because one of the questions was, one of the questions was, do you read the writings of Ellen White? Now, that was a, that was a question planted among the 20, so it didn't stand out. But they're going to use that question now to measure responses to every other of the 19 spiritual practices. All right? So they asked the readers of Ellen White, because you would answer in a question, yes, I, I read Ellen White. Those who say that do read Ellen White, they're going to be on the graph as the readers. Those who don't are obviously the non-readers. Look at this. They asked the, they asked the, the, the uh, survey respondents, rank your relationship with Jesus. 85% of those who read Ellen White said, I have a strong relationship with Jesus. 59% of those who say, I do not read Ellen White, say, I have a strong relationship with Jesus. Do you see the difference? Those who read Ellen White consistently reported they had a strong relationship with Jesus. To a, what's, what's the difference there? Uh, 26% difference. Wow. Maybe, maybe the gift has a residual effect on all of our spirituality. Let's try another one. Uh, how about assurance of being right with God? There are a lot of people out there, particularly among the critics, who say that if you read Ellen White, you have no assurance. I mean, you've lost your assurance. She just makes you so works-focused and conscious of your behavior that you just you lost the gospel. Isn't it amazing that, among, that within the Seventh-day Adventist community, those who read Ellen White expressed, 82% of them expressed an assurance of being right with God. Whereas among those who don't read Ellen White, 59% said, I have the assurance of being right with God. Isn't that difference amazing? Here's another one. I'm just picking some out of that chart. You have the whole chart. You can look through the chart at your leisure. I feel well prepared for witnessing. Now, this isn't high for either one of them. But the readers of Ellen White, 49% said, yeah, I feel, well, I feel well prepared for witnessing. 24% of the non-readers said, I feel prepared for witnessing. Daily personal Bible study. I thought this was very significant. Take a look at this. Do you study the Bible? Do you study the Bible every day? 82% of those who read Ellen White say, you betcha, every day I study the Bible. How about you who don't read the Bible? 47%. No, you who don't read Ellen White, 47% say... I study the Bible. 53% of those who don't read Ellen White don't read the Bible. Isn't that amazing? This is within just our little community of faith. This isn't like asking, asking Baptists and Methodists, what do you think? This, no, this is just Seventh-day Adventists. How about family worship in the home? Listen to this, young parents. Family worship in the home. Those homes whose parents are reading Ellen White. 70% of those homes are saying, we have family worship. Those homes that are not reading Ellen White, only 42% of them, less than half of them, have family worship. Wait a minute, wait a minute. This is making a difference. This isn't just about reading Ellen White. This is coloring your entire spiritual profile. Nobody knew the question was going to be using Ellen White as the key. The question was simply slipped in among the 20. And yet when we isolate your responses to number 20, we then evaluate your responses to the other 19. And consistently, 
consistently. Leading Roger uh, Dudley and Des Cummings to conclude, seldom, now notice this, seldom does a research study find the evidence so heavily weighted toward one conclusion. In the church growth survey on every single item that deals with personal attitudes or practices of spiritual life, the member who regularly studies Ellen White's books tends to rank higher than does the member who reads them only occasionally or never. Isn't that amazing? 8,200 respondents. Amazing. Which being interpreted means that when you taste them again for the first time, your reading of the writings of Ellen White in the new year, because this is the next of the last of the old day of the old year, so your determination in the new year, I'm going to increase my reading of this gift entrusted to the church. Your inclusion of the reading of Ellen White's writings will open the door to. What do we just see? A deeper walk with Christ and a more fruitful expression of your faith. Somebody just kind of came up with this and invented it and said, hey, by the way, you're going to be so much more blessed. No, they surveyed 8,200 Seventh-day Adventists living in the United States and Canada and then got these results. Ah, but do I come on, please. 130 books bearing her name. Where in the world am I going to begin? Why don't we begin with the testimony of Jesus? I want to close by, telling, by, by sharing with you three books that I hope you'll read in the new year. If you've never read Alan White before, here's what you do. Just check it out. Just, just taste it. Maybe it's, not for the, it's, maybe it's not taste it again. Maybe it's tasting it for the first time. Here are the three that you start with. Please. And one of them is a, is a unique rendition of it, and I'll tell you about it in just a moment. Number one. Steps to Christ. This is the classic. Do they, by the way, in this, uh, you got an exhibit hall here for this uh, um, convention. Do they have like a book, a book sales or anything like that? Do they have it? You got an Adventist book center here. Okay. Steps to Christ. This is this book has been translated into more languages than any of her books. Remember, she's the third most translated author in human history, the most translated American author, male or female, ever. And this is her number one translated book, Steps to Christ. I got it in a nice little, it was given to me, a nice little gift edition, leather bound. You know what, Karen and I read through this book. Last January, we were having 40 days of prayer in our church, and we were, there's a, there's a Facebook website, by the way, that will help you get through this book in 40 days, and it gives you the exact portion to be reading um, uh, every day. So Karen and I were doing it each evening together. And, you know, I, I told you my testimony yesterday was this little book when I was in the seminary is what brought me to, back to Jesus. I grew up in an Adventist home. I was born saved, I figured. But it was this little book. And so I am absolutely unabashed and unapologetic about recommending this book to you. Buy it in the paperback edition. Buy a nice little leather-bound edition. Keep this with you. You can throw it in your purse, your briefcase. You, listen, forget you, you. Dwight, you are such a... You're such a bibliophile and you're so old-fashioned. Don't you know that you can get this all on your iPhone? Of course. You can get this book on your iPhone. You have it with you 24-7. The point is, read it. Just read it. This book will bless you. And here's what I was going to tell you. So Karen and I are going through this book and I am, for the first time, um, I, I hadn't caught this, how replete this book is with grand declarations of God's love for the human race. I mean, you're seeing God's love just again and again and again. This is a classic. Please, 
You've never read Ellen White before. You're a young adult. You're just you're wanting to check them out. Check the books out. Start with Steps to Christ. It's a short little book. You'll, it will bless you. Now, look. I understand that uh, the book doesn't have a whole lot of stories in it. So I'm going to recommend another book for you. If, if we're going to taste them again for the first time, and you're saying, Dwight, you know, I grew up reading these books once upon a time. It's been a long time. My friend, these three, these three, go back to these three. Start with these three, then see where God leads you. Here's number two, The Desire of Ages. Now, because I'm flying only carry-on, I didn't bring my paperback Desire of Ages, but I want to tell you about it because my friend Jerry Potzer, before he died, organized the production of this little paperback Desire of Ages. It has the award-winning artwork of Daryl Tank. He's a sketch artist. He has a picture of Jesus on the cross, just the head and the crown of thorns on the cover. Pacific Press puts this one out. You're going, and I, but here's what's unique about it. It's not the artwork. Every chapter has the artwork. Here's what's unique. It's the New King James Version. The fact of the matter is that the King James is unintelligible now to an entire generation. I read the King James sometimes and I'm saying, what did I just read? Now, some of you are offended by that. I'm not worried about your being offended. I'm worried about a generation now that can't understand it and that a generation that needs to taste them again. So Desire of Ages has come out now in a New King James Version. And I'm telling you, it will bless you. I read it through. The pagination is different, but you know what? You're not interested in pagination. Just read. It's paperback. You can get it perhaps right down here at the exhibit hall. It's a, you say, I've already read Desire of Ages. I've read it 12 or 13 times, folks. It's, it's just a classic. You can read it again. Taste them again for the first time. And get the New King James Version. You're going to love the paperback edition. You say, I got it on my iPhone. Use it on your iPhone. Read it. And the third one? We're going to taste them again for the first, uh, for the, uh, first time. The third one... I want to recommend is the book, Great Controversy. Hands down, this is the most dramatically influential book Ellen White has ever written. This book has been read in high places. I know of three scholars who trace their conversion and membership in our community of faith to the reading of this book. Now, I'm going to warn you, if you read this book, you will never be the same again. This book, also out in the New King James Version, by the way, this book will leave you never the same again. In fact, Ellen White wrote about this book these words, the great controversy should be very widely circulated. It contains the story of the past, the present, and the future. In its outlines of the closing scenes of this earth's history, it bears a powerful testimony in behalf of the truth. I am more anxious to see a wide circulation for this book than any of the others I have written. Numero uno. You're going to hand one out. This is the one. For in the great controversy, the last message of warning for the world is given more distinctly than in any of my other books. Three books, ladies and gentlemen. Three books, if you've never read Ellen White, for 2012. Three books. Steps to, what are the three? Great controversy. Three books. Three books. A theologian named Joseph Battistone summarizing these books. And there, there are five books she's written called The Conflict of the Ages. Do you know what the five are? Patriarchs and Prophets. Desire of Ages. 
Acts of the Apostles, and Great Controversy. Now, writing of those five, I'm going to end with this quotation right here. The Conflict of the Ages series is, in many respects, a theological masterpiece. In a unique way, Ellen White unfolds a drama of the most significant controversy in human history, identifies the main issues in the conflict, and demonstrates their relevance for each individual. In a simple way, she provides answers to some of the most vexing questions relating to the human dilemma, those having to do with the problem of evil. One of the major achievements of this work, if not the most important, is the exoneration of God's character. Patriarchs and Prophets begins with three words. Great controversy ends with the same three words. Do you know what those three words are? God is love. And between those covers is the dramatic portrayal of God in the midst of Lucifer's rebellion trying to win the heart of the human race back to his kingdom. God is is love. I tell you what, if you're going to pick a new reading list for 2012, I would humbly urge you to include on that list, even if you've read them before, Steps to Christ, Desire of Ages, and The Great Controversy. Taste them again for the first time. And I promise you, you will never be quite the same again. By their fruits, Jesus said. By their fruits. There's a youth edition for these? Good for you. By their fruits, Jesus said. You will know them. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. And a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Ladies and gentlemen, I present the evidence for your contemplation. But I'm going to hope and pray that in the new year you taste the gift of the testimony of Jesus again. Let's stand together as we pray. Holy Father, we have flown through this material these last few sessions. Bottom line, your passionate love for the human race extends itself in a gift. The gift is the Lord Jesus Himself. But the testimony of Jesus is a part of that gift. And so of all communities of faith on this earth, dear God, grant that this one, that we are humbly honored to be a part of, grant that we might taste and see that the Lord is good. And if it's been a long time since we've tasted, then may we taste them again for the first time. New eyes, a new heart, a new eagerness to see the picture of Jesus contained in these pages. Thank you for these men, women, these men, these women, these young adults, these teenagers, these children. Make every one of them a bold and radical disciple of the Lord Jesus. And in the new year, with the good news of our Savior, send us into the world on His behalf. This afternoon, let it be a foretaste of the year before us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, 
a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.